Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Coming up today, we'll hear from artist Angie Harris in our series, Speaking of the Arts. And later, the founders of High Low Press share the story behind their unique art collective. But first, the Atlanta-born stand-up comedian and comedy writer, Ms. Pat, a.k.a. Patricia Williams, has truly seen it all. Her comedy crackles with hard-edged realism, which is unsurprising given that Ms. Pat overcame an early life on the streets, has been shot twice, served jail time, and raised two kids she had as a teenager. Ms. Pat's sitcom, The Ms. Pat Show, is returning for a second season starting tomorrow, August 11th on BET+. She also currently has a one-hour comedy special on Netflix titled, Y'all Want to Hear Something Crazy?, And her podcast, The Pat Down with Ms. Pat, is released weekly via the podcast comedy network, Star Burns Audio. This very busy woman joins me now via Zoom. Ms. Pat, welcome to City Lights. Thank you for having me. (laughs) It is a pleasure. What an interesting life you have led. Given that your life has been quite a roller coaster, what do you think a viewer needs to know about your background before sitting down to watch an episode of The Miss Pat Show? Just know that I'm real. I mean, I love to brief people like, hey, I am your nice convicted felons, okay? I made a, quite a few mistakes, but we're going to laugh through it. So, what is the premise of The Miss Pat Show? It's based about 98% of my life. So it takes a lot of my life stories and it puts it on the strings. That's why we're able to talk about things that most regular TV won't won't allow you to talk about. So we go deep, we go dark. I like I try to teach my comedy audience, we try to teach my my TV audience that you can take any pain in your life and find the funny in it. That's how you start to heal. That is a beautiful way to live. And indeed, the Ms. Pat show often makes a point of addressing real issues that real people deal with. Would you mind sharing some examples? I did an episode uh, in the first season where I have I have a gay daughter and, you know, me being born in the South, you know how we raise and how we think it. So I opened myself up to show how ignorant I was to the fact and the show, no matter what my daughter chooses to do, I still love my daughter no matter what. So that was a really great episode for us. Another one was uh, getting my power back from the from the man, which was her father, who treated me wrong. I had a very bad relationship with him. He was married. I was really young. So we did a great episode on that. That's the episode that's nominated for the Emmy. And, you know, just real life. We did, In second season, we tackle molestation. We tackle black hair. We tackle struggle in relationships. We tackle why black people don't go to counseling. We did all of that. Wow, you really are digging deep. The episode that's nominated for the Emmy, can we dig into that a little more? You said that you were young when you were with him. How young is young? When I met him, I was 12. He was 22, married with a wife, with a baby on the way. I got pregnant at 13 and gave birth to my first child at 14. And then I had another child by one. When I was 15, very abusive relationship. Spent about 10 years with this guy. And in the episode, you would see him come back to be the daddy that he ain't gonna never be. And you just see each one of the, my family members kind of help me take my power back from him. Wow. So you mentioned your family. How close 
is your family on the show to your real family? All the way down to the names. <laughs> My son really is named Junebug. I have a daughter named Ashley. But the characters that the actors play, I mean, we really took my real kids and put them into these characters on TV. Sometimes I have to forget these people on TV is not my family. <laughs> yeah, that's got to be a little bit odd. I mean, you're running completely parallel to your life. And congratulations, by the way, on returning for a second season. That's no easy feat for any sitcom. How has the show been received so far? You know, when it first came out, you know, people people had their opinions, but I think the ones who with us is with us now. Even when the co-creator was like, oh, I want you to be like yourself every day. I want you to curse. And I was like, nobody's going to let a big black woman get away with cursing her kids out on TV, even though I do it every day in life. And he was like, if we find the right home. And so many people come to my show, like, oh my God, Miss Pat, that's how I talk to my kids. Oh my God, Miss Pat, this is my family. And I was like, okay, we kind of struck gold. People finally wanted something real. So they're, I mean, they're eating it up. No, I mean, from all walks of life, all color life, you know, it's it's so funny because I, I have such a diverse audience. So in the Ms. Pat show, your main character finds herself and her family suddenly transplanted from Atlanta to suburban Indiana. And you have real life history with both of these places. What are the differences in these settings that challenge the show's Ms. Pat the most? <laughs> I think living in Indianapolis, it was such a culture shock for me. You know, I'm from the inner city of Atlanta. I guess you say the hood, the ghetto or whatever. But when you get thrown into a conservative middle class neighborhood, it's, it was a culture shock for me. <laughs> so never would have thought I would have, you know, created a TV show. But I could sit out on my porch every day and write an episode. I said, we are not the same. Yeah. So do you ever get feedback from folks who live in Indiana about the show's portrayal of Indianans and their culture? No, no ma'am. I, I lived in Indiana for 15 years. I know my neighborhood. I don't have to make up anything. I lived it each and every day. Like <laughs> I started going to the Goodwill because of white people. I mean, they would go and they would have a painter Teresa Tabor day. And everybody in the neighborhood would go over there and help Teresa paint that table. I said, now, how interesting is this? And then they were, I learned how to coupon from living in my white neighborhood. That's why the second episode on the first season were couponing. And they kicked me out of the couponing club because I was treating the coupon like dope money. What do you mean like dope money? Girl, I was balling it up, putting it in my chest. I, they was all organized with their little coupon books. And I couldn't understand why they were so organized. And I got my stuff. I'm taking it out with rubber bands around it. They was like, nah, you can't be in the club. <laughs> so tell us about your experience shooting the first and second season do you shoot with a live audience we do shoot with a live audience I mean, we have a live party every week you hear me you have not seen an audience like the one at the miss pat show this is the first time they ever had a live studio audience in atlanta georgia for a sitcom too so you know me and the co-creator jordan e. cooper was able to bring that here to atlanta and it took a minute for before people caught on, but I'm telling you, we have so many repeats this season, this last season. We had to start to turn away people. So many people was coming out. Where is it filmed? It's filmed off of Boat Rock, down off by Fortune Industrial. Mm -hmm. Well, earlier this year, you released your one-hour comedy special, Y'all Want to Hear Something Crazy, via Netflix. And you devote the time to sharing what it's like growing up poor and black in the 1980s. It is directed by Robert Townsend and produced by Wanda Sykes. How did you get connected with those two comedy legends? Well, I knew I knew Wanda from just, you know, just doing comedy, you know, here and there. And I knew she was doing a, uh, she had a production company where she was producing a lot of women stand up for Netflix. So she was the first person I grabbed. And then the next person I had to go out after that wasn't easy was Robert Townsend. And it was a, such a joy working with him. I, le I learned so much. He do not play about comedy. And when I tell you I had to rehearse for him once a week for two to three hours a day, it, it was not easy. I was like, I don't think they're going to work out. But he knew what he was talking about. And that special, the audience in it, it's so interesting to me because you spend time telling stories that are both true and outlandish because this is your life. How do you handle an audience that maybe can't keep up with the wild ride? Well, you know, it's nothing I can do if you can't, if you can't handle it. You can go home and relieve your babysitter. 
I'm at the point, I'm 50 years old. I cannot worry about you trying to rearrange my career. I'm going to do me. If whoever's for me, going to come to me. It's the same way with Chick-fil-A. When they put out their little crazy memos and say what they got to say, no matter what, people stick with Chick-fil-A. So I am the Chick-fil-A of, the, of comedy. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So let's talk about your podcast, The Pat Down with Ms. Pat. What kind of topics do you talk about? We just talk about everyday life, to be honest with you. What went on between the three co-hosts? I mean, I might have a bad day. They might have a good day. We don't plan it. We just get there and we talk. That's what I love about Tell it. Tell me about your co-hosts. One of them name is Chris Spangle. He used to work, he works on the Bob and Tom show. And when I was in Indiana, I used to do the Bob and Tom show a lot. And the other one is a comedian who's sometime over for me named Dion Curry. Nobody's special, just people I made friends with when I moved to Indiana. And Joe Rogan was like, you should start a podcast. And so I decided to start one. And I grabbed the two, first two people I knew that could read out loud. That's a good role. So on one episode last year, you spoke about having once been a nanny. Would you mind sharing that experience? Oh, yeah, girl. I used to be a nanny. <laughs> I used to keep all the white kids in Buckhead. And uh, whew, I wanted to whoop everybody. It didn't last long. <laughs> One lady checked my background and told me she, my check was in the mail. So I was like, this ain't going to work out for me. Do you have a favorite episode that you've recorded thus far? Uh, yeah, the favorite episode for me this year, I think I have two. One is a, a robbery episode where we get robbed. I think that's hilarious. But the more groundbreaking for me is the Black Hat episode where I did an episode about how as a kid, my mama would call me nappy headed. And she would say, my sister look a lot better than I do. And to me, that's where the trauma started with, with my hair, yeah. with my mama telling me, it was nappy. It was kinky and making me think as a kid that there was something wrong because so many other other black girls have heard those words or have gone through those things. And I just wanted to do an episode on because I had never seen it done like that before. Yeah. No one wants to be told they're not good enough, especially from their mom. Yeah, but that's right. One thing I learned, hurt people hurt people realized I was in a cycle. I was on this train that wasn't going nowhere. So I just went on ahead and got my transfer and got off. Good for you. And you mentioned earlier, you know, a stigma around therapy in the black community. You talk as though you have had some therapy in your life and you have gotten your stuff straight. When did you get exposed to talk therapy? Uh, I ain't never been no therapist. I ain't gonna never lie to you. You haven't. No, comedy has been my therapy. I mean, I mean, you can either sit down with somebody with a degree or you can sit down with your girlfriend. No matter who, no matter what, you just spilling your beans to whoever. That's just an educated person with some glasses sitting on their nose and listening to you. Your girlfriend is the same therapy. My audience is the same therapy. Comedy allowed me to let a lot of things go in my life. Comedy was healing for me. You know, people go, people get therapy different ways. And for me, it was hitting that stage, telling 200 people or 20 people a night what the heck I had been through. And we could all laugh and I could hear people going out the door, Miss Pat, I went through the same thing. That's how I healed. That's how I forgave. Comedian Ms. Pat. Her sitcom, The Ms. Pat Show, returns tomorrow, August 11th on BET+. And her podcast, The Pat Down with Ms. Pat, is available for weekly download via your favorite podcast provider. More information is on our website at wabe.org slash citylights. It's time now for our series, Speaking of the Arts, where we hear from local artists in their own words. My name is Angie Jerez. I like to draw or to paint organic shapes inspired by nature. I love to depict these shapes in a way that it feels like they are growing, like they are blooming, appropriating the space. I see them animated in my head and I hope people to see them in the same way. I have a background as a graphic designer and I work uh, on a digital agency for several years doing web design. So a couple of years after I moved to Atlanta in 2012, I decided to stop doing that. And I started to draw and paint again and submitting work. And I remember I did my first gallery piece in 2017 for Paper Plane Gallery. 
and the experience was great and I haven't stopped creating art since then. There are several galleries where you can find new art in Atlanta, like Hilo Press, Kadai Creative in downtown, White Space in Inman Park, The Bakery. The best part of Atlanta is like you can find art or public art everywhere. Electrical boxes or art in Cabbage Town, all the walls. If people want to check my mural work, I have murals in Cabbage Town, Grand Park, Inman Park, Old Forward, and there is one in the Pad 400. And my website is angieherez.net. Artist Angie Herez and our series, Speaking of the Arts. In a moment, the founders of the High Low Press Gallery and Art Collective share their unique DIY journey. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzis, and it is great to have you along. Throughout the last several years of Atlanta's many changes and expansions, a vibrant, independent arts community continues to produce treasures, though not without challenges. The High Low Press Gallery and Collective has created a space for Atlanta artists and creatives for the last five years. Through potlucks, exhibitions, open mic nights, and parties, they've hosted some memorable art experiences. Hilo founder Diana Settles and collective member Sophie Whitmore recently joined City Lights host Lois Reitzes via Zoom, and Settles began with the origin story behind Hilo Press Gallery and Collective. So I had been looking for studio space around Atlanta and kept finding long wait lists, and I found out that Beep Beep Gallery, which had been around in Midtown for 10 years, was hosting their, their very last show. And I went and asked if there was anything slated for the space afterwards. And there hadn't been. So that was sort of the first time that I really thought about having any sort of like gallery space. Um, I wanted there to be a continuation of spaces where people could meet and talk about work and see different art. So the idea to have like the commercial printing body kind of just was initially to be able to pay the rent. And very early on, I realized that that wasn't something that I felt super interested in. And that the things that felt better that were happening in the space were the shows and workshops that we were doing. And so it kind of quickly sort of transitioned into figuring out how to make more of those happen. So for the first four and a half years, Hilo was completely funded by me. <laughs> that meant that sometimes I would do print jobs, sometimes I would do workshops, I was doing tattooing, I was babysitting, kind of like any odd jobs that I could do to pay the bills. And we started doing rent parties and we got to do three rent parties before everything sort of shut down. And then obviously <laughs> COVID happened and having really packed dance parties was not so much a thing. <laughs> and so we organized some rent strike endeavors for the block, which went on for several months. Lost the space in January of 2021. And then in the time since then, we've had 
several shows outdoors and kind of like unexpected places. And then since March of this year, we have a new location in the basement of a house in Lakewood. Let's talk a little bit about that tenant's rent strike at the building you organized. Do you see that struggle within a broader context of independent art spaces trying to maintain a foothold in Atlanta's changing environment? Definitely. I I think that it gets more difficult every day to do things here. There's so much development. There's so much change from the presence of the film industry. And it's harder and harder to find spaces for encounter that aren't fully mediated through commerce. And it felt like really there was so much struggle the first several years of, of kind of scrounging however I could to make do that after having the rent parties and realizing that those were no longer going to be an option, doing the rent strike felt like the only thing that we could do to maintain the space. Hmm. So Hilo Gallery is far beyond just being a gallery. Would you talk about the wide variety of activities the collective creates and hosts? Yeah things like poetry open mic, there's drag drawing, there's the Atlanta Painting Club, just kind of anything you could think of. And as we've collectivized, like Diana just said, we've had a lot of outdoor events, which has really changed our relationship to how we even present work. And we have a space Mm -hmm. again, but we, we can't forget like the show that we did in a tunnel or the show that we did outside, you know, outside of Diana's house, things like that has just really opened, broadened our expectations for ourselves. And we also do something called drunk critique, which (laughs) originated at the Lowe Museum, um, which was a similar type of space run in Atlanta a few years back, where you come see artwork that's presented by Atlanta artists or hear poetry and then provide critique while taking shots. Oh my. (laughs) There is also during the George Floyd uprising, revolutionary black cinema series. And we still do screenings that relate to the political realities of Atlanta and the country more broadly. One film that we were excited to screen for the Defend the Atlanta Forest Week of Action is called Earth Two, which is made by a collective in New York called the Anti-Banality Union. The Anti-Banality Union. Yes. I love that name. They're they're wonderful. They basically take pieces of many, many massive blockbuster films and then painstakingly piece them together to create completely different narratives. So I'm very excited. (laughs) (laughs) Sophie, how long have you been involved with Hilo? Well, I would say my involvement began 2017 or 2018. There was a reading group hosted at the original Hilo space of this book called Now by the Invisible Committee. And I attended and met Diana and then was just at as many Hilo events as I could be present for since then. And then in 2020, Diana asked me to edit the journal Spoil. And we kind of came up with the concept for the journal together. And then I've been editing it for the past year and a half. And uh, within the first month of our working together on that, we decided to become a collective. And it's just been, yeah, it's the rest is history, I suppose. (laughs) So please tell us more about Spoil. It's a poetry magazine. Yeah, it's a it's a poetry quarterly, so we put out for a year. And initially, I was looking for poets who were embedded in experiments, communal experiments, or ways of living that were not were attempting to not be involved in in capitalist structures. 
And I know a lot of people like that. And that's sort of the background that I come from. So it was easy to pull from that. And that was kind of the beginning of the magazine. And Diana would find an artist and we put everything together on InDesign, which we didn't know how to use at the time. We were, you know, like watching videos and Googling it. We were borrowing a friend's Adobe login. TikTok. <laughs> 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 Occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Hilo has a risograph, which was donated and breaks down probably twice every printing. <laughs> so it was a, a labor of love and still is. And I've handed over the editorial kind of job to someone who was in one of the early journals named Nora Treat Baby. And so we're hoping from here on out to have a different poet edit each journal as we go. So you mentioned a press. This is a hard copy yes. poetry magazine. Do you charge for it? We do. We, we charge sliding scale from 10 to $15 for a copy. Because with your fervent belief in artistic collective, I wonder, do you rely on grants? You talked about rent parties. How do you live? We try to live as well as we can. We, <laughs> we don't have any like funding from grants or anything like that. After the rent strike, we started a Patreon. And through the Patreon, we send out like physical newsletters to people who subscribe. And that's enough to, to cover the rent. And then from sales of spoil and occasional like merch sales we make enough to like at least like pay the contributors in addition to spoil we've also done we did a collection of love letters that were very fun and bits and bobs but we we don't make a living from Hilo. yeah ah earlier on i think sophie you mentioned the outdoor exhibitions and i was hoping you'd talk a bit more either or both of you about endless seance, your show that took place in a waterlogged <laughs> tunnel. Yes, endless seance is a pride and joy. <laughs> so the tunnel that the show took place in many years ago, like over a decade ago, there were noise shows and punk shows that would happen there with a generator. And one of our friends and neighbors told Keelan, who's another collective member about that. And so we went as a group to look at the space. And like you said, there's a, there's about a foot of water standing on each side of the tunnel. And we thought that it felt like a really beautiful place. It's this massive tunnel that I'm not sure how long it's been around, but it was like very inspiring to try and figure out what sort of things should take place there. And so Sophie wrote an act to a play instead of writing like a, a statement for the show. And we felt really inspired by our friends have a collective called No Light and they throw raves in abandoned spaces. And similarly, you know, we kind of figured out what we needed to do beforehand for the show. So, you know, we came up with our theme we talked to all of the artists and picked up the work and then built these supports. You know, everything was lit by candlelight. Well, something that was really special about this show was we knew that where the tunnel is would become part of the Beltline. And it is now pretty much feels like Beltline territory, whereas before it kind of felt like free and open space. And that feels like where a lot of the city is headed is you know, being beltlined or Ponce City marketed. And so if we all felt like we wanted to kind of pay homage to this space and the plethora of seemingly free spaces that are places like the whole point of Defend Atlanta Forest, which is to try to keep spaces, some spaces open and free uh, for the public and for the trees. And so we are kind of having collective conversations about both celebrating and mourning the loss of a lot of those spaces, which is where we came up with the idea of endless seance, which is sort of like, we would like 
to believe that the spirit of many of the things that have been developed somehow stays with us forever and charges us with the type of energy that allows us to do the things that we want to do in the city moving forward so that we don't get totally swept up in despair and just sort of give up. Yeah, and that so that was the spirit of the show. It felt very present for the couple of hours where people were there. It seems that the location had everything to do with the experience of the art. And I wondered if that was all the more intentional on your part after high lows being without brick and mortar. Definitely. So the block that Hilo originated on was sold in August of 2019. And even though the people who had purchased it weren't very transparent about what they were doing, I anticipated that we would lose the space imminently. And so I had about a year and a half to kind of grapple with different shapes that Hilo could take. And it felt like maybe a shift could be instead of having shows that are up for a month having shows that only happen for one evening and so in the in the case of endless seance we announced that the date should be saved and then a few hours before the opening which it was only up for three hours we released a map with instructions on how to get there and at that point, we had done one other show outdoors. We did a show of sculptures by Bong and Kim, who is our friend's father, an incredible sculptor. And we placed his works around the farm that I live on, Crack in the Sidewalk Farmlet. And it felt like this really beautiful thing where all of a sudden, knowing that you don't have to have a brick and mortar space to have a show, it, like that piece being malleable sort of made every other aspect of like putting on an event feel that much more like plastic and changing and so when we were installing that show we kept joking and being like wow this is the best ceiling of any gallery I've ever been to (laughs) (laughs) and with endless seance it felt really important and, and like a meaningful way of engaging with how difficult it is to find spaces like this in the city and how rapidly changing and sort of like disappearing they seem to be. What are some upcoming projects or events we can look forward to at Hilo? We have several. So in addition to the screening that we're having for the week of action, we'll have a closing and artist talk for the current show that's up by Jordan Stubbs, which is called Open During Construction on August 19th. And then there'll be a drunk critique the following night, the 20th. And then on August 27th, we'll have the opening reception for the next show, which is curated by Species Gallery called Burning the Wheel of the Year. And another artist, Carly Rickles, has been doing an ongoing sort of land-based exploration project. And so she'll be having another iteration of that at the opening on the 27th as well. Hilo Press Gallery and Collective founder Diana Settles and Collective member Sophie Whitmore. You can find out more about the gallery's upcoming projects on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, the artist known as GFB3 takes us on a tour of his newly created Atlanta Black Arts map. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Droves, in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Atlanta artist George F. Baker III, also known as GFB3, creates bright artwork to engage the inner child we all have. In a collaboration with Ideas United, he has created a new map of the city, a guide to Black-created art and businesses. The project was a Black History Month-inspired undertaking, but this informative map highlights Black contributions all year round. When GFB3 joined City Lights host Lois Reitzes this past spring, he began by explaining how this map project came to be. 
it all happened because of a prior relationship with the amazing Bridget Kimborough. We actually worked on a, a project a couple of years ago over at Adult Swim. You know, she transferred over to Ideas United and and as soon as this project kind of started simmering on her end, she told me that she knew exactly who she needed to contact and it was me. Yeah, from there, we just kind of, you know, worked on building out the entire concept and creating this wonderful map that you have here. <laughs> Lots of mutual respect and great ties here. Mm -hmm. George, will you describe the layout of the map? Yes. So I kind of wanted to honor all the beautiful artwork and, and businesses that we have inside the perimeter. So I kind of wanted to, you know, display this, this beautiful tapestry that we have in Atlanta of all these different beautiful neighborhoods and within it kind of highlight these small and just gorgeous moments that we have of like black artistry and, and black businesses within Atlanta. Like we, we know of a lot of beautiful things that we have over in like downtown, but I felt like, you know, we need to expand that out a little bit. You know, we need to talk about some of the beautiful things that are happening over in College Park, some of the amazing things that are happening over in East Atlanta. Through this map, through this illustrated guide, I wanted, uh, I wanted people to be delighted and, and find new things that they didn't even know were, were there all through my map. Well, I think you succeeded with the delightful part. Also, I spoke with Amaretta the Great. <laughs> yes. Are you aware of her Sorry Not Sorry song? Incredibly familiar. <laughs> I know of a lot of things that aren't Atlanta now. So. <laughs> well, but, you know, yeah. the way our city, our metro area was planned or not planned, if you want to think of it that way, with all the counties. When we say Atlanta, we really are talking about a large metropolitan area. And, and your map acknowledges that. I mean, you mentioned College Park, and East Point is another place. There are points north and south and west, and so much creativity in the metro area, all worth celebrating. Did you help decide which businesses and artists were to be included on the map, George? I didn't know how much input you had. Yeah, so they definitely came to me with a good bit of it, but I'm always one where I kind of want to go the, the extra mile. And, you know, I, I never rely on any list to be like the full list. So, you know, I definitely had a lot of input on including more mural artists that I was a fan of that, that I didn't see represented on the list. You know, for example, Drew Borders, who has this amazing, you know, art piece that is over near Buteco at, at the Beacon, you know, artists like Jermaine Clark, even including some gallery spaces that I felt like really need to be you know, add it to the list. It was definitely like a collaborative effort because I want to show the full tapestry of Atlanta, you know, highlight the things that we do know about, but also give more shine to the things that we don't. Can you name a few of those galleries for us? Yeah. So some of the galleries that I had listed on here, uh, man, I believe it was uh, Tila Gallery 992 that I've, I've gone to so many times in my life, just for like different reasons from, you know, whether it's like some of the, the regular shows that they have there or um, some of the musical shows that they have, even uh, Peter Street Station, everything that they have going on there. And that's like a, a daily operation from showcasing all the different sides of artistry, everything from spoken word on Fridays to musical acts on Wednesdays, to a full secret gallery in the back. Like it's, it's a whole operation out there and I wanted to make sure to highlight that too. So much to discover. Through this process, did you learn about any fascinating Atlanta people or places you hadn't known before? Yeah, I, I think the coolest parts of working on this project is like, I've been in Atlanta since 2003 and you know, I've seen 
so many different businesses and so many different things. But the gorgeous thing is finding new things that I didn't even know were here. Like the, the Brave and Kind bookstore that's over in Decatur. I had no idea that that even existed. And it was such a pleasure to be able to learn a lot more about, you know, what they have to offer and, and some of the, the gorgeously illustrated books that they have there. Even the, the Four Keeps bookstore that's uh, over on Auburn, I had no idea that existed until, you know, I started working with Ideas United and, you know, they, in a sense, kind of united me to that idea. So <laughs> it, was, it was really interesting. <laughs> Ideas United called this project a choose-your-own-adventure map of Atlanta. If you had one day, if you could only have one day to choose your own Atlanta adventure, what sites would you suggest? Oh, man. Okay. This is, this is such a hard question, but if I only had one day, um, I think what I would like to do, I would probably, I would probably start off my day by, you know, heading over to the Atlanta Breakfast Club, which is closer to like downtown, semi-midtown Atlanta, get some good breakfast, some good waffles, <laughs> and then make my way back up Northside Drive and, and take in uh, Gerald Lavelle's Grace Mural, which is right across the street from the Mercedes-Benz Stadium. It is just a gorgeous mural to kind of take in. And then, you know, of course, I'm going to start to get a little hungry again because, you know, I get hungry all the time. So I'm going to come <laughs> back down to Edgewood and go see uh, Slutty Vegan, which, you know, I actually did the, the front facade for. So it's two forms of black art getting shown right it's there. It's wonderful. It's just wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> and finally, I would probably uh, end my day over at the Beacon and see the beautiful art that uh, Drew Borders and a lot of other, you know, great Black artists have uh, done over there. So, yeah, I would end my day off like that. <laughs> Sounds great. And hopefully yes. people can stretch out visits or return for more because, as the map shows, there is so much more. You've lived in other arts-rich cities, George, Detroit among them. What differences have you observed in the art scene culture between those places and Atlanta? Mm, I believe that the, the main difference is that Atlanta, the main thing that always, you know, is just at the center of everything that we do here is change. Whether it's change that we embrace or change that naturally happens. And, you know, for some people that's almost seen as like, it's almost seen like a, as a detriment, but I don't really see it that way. I see it as in Atlanta, we're constantly just tilling the soil of just beauty here. You know, so there's always something new that's added, whether it's by people that have been here for years creating, you know, new institutions and new movements, or it's people that are transplants that that have seen Atlanta from afar and just want to be attached to it and want to add on to the narrative. Like they're coming and bringing their new ideas here. And so I think the, the most gorgeous thing about Atlanta is that every single day, there's something brand new that we have to offer here. And it's something that's never going to stop. You know, it's something that's always going to be just blooming with just creative energy. And you can't predict what's going to happen, but you can always embrace it. So that's what you think is the essence of the arts community of Black creators in our city. I mean, it seems that what you're saying is newcomers and first-time visitors should know this about Atlanta arts in general. Yes. Is there more you'd want to convey? Yeah, that's something that you have to rely on and depend on here is that we're always going to be growing and showing new 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 sides of ourselves and combining different ways of life to to really create something very vibrant and unique here in Atlanta. 
it's a place where everybody knows everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, we're all like one step away from Andre. Like <laughs> it's, it's it's something. <laughs> it's so beautiful here, and, and because of that, like there's a unique, homegrown just beauty that is always just effervescent here. So the South keeps <laughs> on ha- having something to say. Always. <laughs> The Atlanta Black Arts map actually includes quite a few restaurants, which is wonderful because food is an art form. You mentioned you're always hungry. I take it you are quite the foodie yourself. Which restaurants are your favorites? Or which might you recommend off the top of your head? Mm. Oh, man, off the top of my head, probably, probably Virgil's. Ah. They have amazing Gullah-inspired food there. As, as someone that is that is uh, Geechee, it's something that just kind of brings me back to my roots in uh, in Savannah and Hilton Head Island. So I would always love to go there and you know check out all their food. All their food is great. So highly recommend mm. it. <laughs> Wish I weren't allergic to shellfish. Oh, man, I'm so sorry. It makes it. I mean, missing out on a lot. Of course, I always manage to find other things to eat, even at restaurants that specialize in <laughs> shellfish. George, your style is so pleasing to the eye. Just upbeat, vivid, charming colors and big blocks, tons of personality. What influences inspire your visual aesthetic Mm. oh man that's you know of course that's a laundry list but you know I think one of the the very first things that that comes to mind is is honestly people I feel like the vibrancy and the differences and the creative energy of people is something that I I kind of try to to represent in in all of my work like people aren't, aren't just made in a vacuum. Like we we're there's no one way for us to be. And I want to try to represent that, that almost like chaotic, but also intriguing maximalism of the world. And so I try to bring that into my art, but if we're talking about just references and, and people that I've always aspired and loved, Keith Haring, somebody's always stuck out to me um, ever since I was a child. I'm a huge fan of like the the 90s and early 2000s Cartoon Network. So Jindy Tarkovsky, who made um, Samurai Jack, uh, man, and he also did Powerpuff Girls. Man, growing up watching Codename Kids Next Door. Mm. (laughs) It's just just all of this like cacophony of like fun cartoons was just something that just inspired my, my work and in the way that I kind of like try to go through life, you know? I love that blended metaphor, a cacophony of cartoons. <laughs> oh, that's great. You have said that your art is intended to help bring out the viewer's inner child. And in fact, you are a co-creator of Foster Child Care Center, a company that creates experiences to bring the inner child out to play. George, what does a childlike perspective mean to you as an artist? Yeah. Oh, man. I feel like it's, it's bringing wonder out of people, you know, allowing a moment to, to kind of clear out the lenses of, of people's, you know, visions and and being able to look at everything as if it was brand new as if you were just a child brought into this world you know you're just staring up and at all of whatever that you see matter of fact I was just talking to my mom about this the other day it's it's just remembering that everything is amazing and everything that that we touch and see has a lot of inherent value that we can just be in awe of and that's what I want to do. I just, I want people to realize like that inner child that we all have is something so precious and that we can 
allow it to come out of ourselves a lot more. We don't have to hide it. We don't have to, you know, conceal it under the lens of adulthood. No, we, we, we need to bring that out because that's when we're being our most honest and authentic selves. George F. Baker III, a.k.a. GFB3. More information about the 2022 Atlanta Black Arts Map Your Day can be found on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights on WABE, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., City Lights engineer and contributor Shelley Canavy takes us to Fernbank for a deep dive into the Tyrannosaurus family tree. Plus, author George Dawes Green tells us about his new book, The Kingdoms of Savannah. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org. There you'll find a complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights executive producer and host is Lois Reitzes. Summer Evans is our producer and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm senior producer Kim Drobes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow Lois on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WAB yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.